To discover the origins of the left versus right paradigm, one must go as far as the French Revolution, with the creation of the National Constituent Assembly, whose main task was to draft a constitution. Now, while France is proudly Republican today, and any trace of royalty has long been guillotined away, that wasn't always the case, and a large portion of the population supported the king, or at least those who represented that population. As such, when on November 11, 1789, the assembly had to vote on whether the constitution would grant the king an absolute veto or a partial veto. Those who favored an absolute veto were asked to sit on the right of the president of the assembly, while those who favored a partial veto, which was the more radical position, were asked to sit on the left. And just like that, France started this idea of change versus tradition of liberalism versus conservatism, which still shapes the political landscape to this day. Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Arca with co-host teaching socialist Andy Lipson and socialist Kenny Cepeda. We're online at westleftpodcast.com. You can find that link to our site in the episode notes. Um, you can also find our, my personal social media handle as at Don Eduardo Arca on Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications and share your favorite episode where you found this episode. All right. Uh, here in Bogota, Colombia, it's great to see you, Jeff. Jeffrey? Yay. Yeah. yeah. And welcome um, to What's Left. Andy, you will take it away from here. Please do. Okay, yeah. So um, first off, yeah, welcome, Jeff. Um, those of you who listen to What's Left, you will often hear us say, well, Jeff might be mad at us for saying this, or Jeff might not be happy that we're saying this. This is the Jeff we're talking about. <laughs> um, it's Jeff Strahl. Um, Jeff, you were on a previous episode. I'm trying to remember what it was. Can you remind, remind me what the episode was? History of uh, the far left in this in the San Francisco Bay Area. I believe it was in the nineteen seventies, eighties, and nineties. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and Jeff writes often writes like you'll see if, if if anybody who checks out our YouTube section you'll see that Jeff will write long comments, um, kind of saying what he agrees with, what he disagrees with. Um, I that I find really helpful and always stimulating. And always getting me to think. Um, and on the episode where we had talked about the left, why we left the left that we left kind of thing, you know, like what happened, what happened to the left that we left, Jeff had wrote a really interesting thing. And I think I'm going to read it. Um, uh, so it kind of, it'll give you a, an, a sense of what we're talking about today. Um, because I, I think we're, we're going to be talking about what, what this term left, where did it come from? And what does it mean? Um, and what does it mean that we use it even as a designator for a, a political side, particularly for those of us who call ourselves or think of ourselves as revolutionaries? Um, and he wrote this. Um, Historically, the term left arose from the French Revolution, during which the parties which favored a faster pace of dismantling feudal social structures gathered on the left side of the French National Assembly. Um, on the uh, uh, Let's see, wait favored a faster pace of dismantling feudal social structures gathered on the left side of the uh, French National Assembly. All the parties represented the new revolutionary capitalist class. During the 19th century, this is after the French Revolution, 100 years later, 
Um, the International Socialist Movement, which became organized as the first international, favored alliances with the left due to seeing it as creating conditions more favorable for socialist organizing. By the end of the 19th century, the now degenerated post-Marx and even post-Engels movement came to see itself as being part of the left as its leaders increasingly saw themselves as future state managers whose goal was more rational management. Uh, that's when it became necessary for genuine revolutionaries to disassociate from the left, which first happened after World War I, again in the 60s and again now as Operation Pandemic has once again shown the left to be the left side of capital. Um, and I really it's just, you know, I, I don't really know too much about the origins of this term left. Um, Jeff sent us some articles, which we will post um, in the description. Um, but I thought it would be a good chance for Jeff to talk about his understanding of where this term left comes from and why particularly those of us who are talking about revolutionary change might know, might not want to talk about building the left, which is something that the organization I was in, the International Socialist Organization, definitely took a lot of pride in building the left, building the left wing, building the left, things like that. Um, and I've heard other progressives and revolutionaries say that. Um, and I think Jeff's notion is definitely challenges that. Um, and it's something that I think both Kenny and I have increasingly become skeptical of this notion of building a left. Um, uh, and so I wanted to have that discussion here and have Jeff, you know, kind of share some of the things he knows or is, you know, his understanding of it and then just kind of take it from there. Okay. Um, I just wanted to add that, you know, in, in, I'm new to a lot of this stuff, you know, and, and so I've learned a lot through the process of the last three, four years almost of the so-called pandemic, right? And in, 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 obviously the whole process uh, was very revealing in terms of what the so-called leftists stand for, right? And that pushed me into looking more into what supposedly right-wingers, you know, um, advocate for in that in some ways um, I align more with in terms, you know, the last four years. And that in turn led me to question this line, right, of right and left. And, and what does that mean? And who does that work for? And, you know, because, uh, you know, we are in a system and we we think that we have differences, but where those differences might be minor. And so I think this is an important conversation for the our show too, right? Because it's in the name of our show, you know, what's left, you know, what is the left? And I don't think I've thought about that. And so I definitely appreciate this conversation and what you had to say, Jeff, and, and what we can talk about. So Jeff, go ahead and take it from there. Like whatever, you know, I kind of gave a very quick synopsis of what, you know, you well, I just read what you wrote. But where do you maybe start off with your understanding of the origins of this term left and what you make of it and just kind of like maybe start our conversation off with that? Okay. Um, the reading I sent, it's funny, it comes from Time magazine of all places, but that's the first thing that came up. I thought it was, it actually seemed to get it, at least in terms of the origin that it, it did come from the uh, French National Assembly in the seventeen in the seventeen eighties and seventeen nineties around the French Revolution and a matter of how fast a change do we want 
although all the sides agree on the capitalist class becoming dominant in society, but how fast do we get rid of past institutions? And this led in the 19th century as an international socialist movement developed, which eventually Karl Marx actually joined. He didn't start it, but he joined and helped organize it into a more, into a tighter form under the first international. And in his writings back then, he would often argue about how these left parties in the parliament would present ideas, present uh, bills that would be perhaps advantageous for the international socialist movement to have been, to have passed, enabling that movement to have, say, more open meetings, not face as blatant a censorship, give it space to breathe. So he proposed supporting or doing whatever activities it took to support these elements within the political class. But he made a distinction between the movement and that political class. Later on, as the movement started organizing itself into groups, which became, for example, the social democratic parties, it had its own representatives where it could do that where the state laws permitted that, and they sometimes allied themselves with the quote-unquote left parties in order to, should we say, push certain political developments that they found favorable. Increasingly, however, Marx became critical of the very notion of the state and completely broke with the idea of the state in 1872 in his, in his uh, book, The Civil War in France, about the Paris Commune of 1870-1871, which sought to actually completely get rid of the state, or at least made major strides towards complete elimination of the state. Marx urged actually a policies which went even further than the Paris Commune had adapted. And he became more and more anti-statist as time went on, as evidenced by many of the notes he wrote in his ethnographic notebooks, which were never published in his lifetime, and in fact were not published fully in English until the 1980s. That's how much they were held back from any kind of public attention. He became more and more aware of other pre-European societies, for example, in the Americas, such as the Iroquois in upstate New York, and how many of their social institutions were far superior to anything that you might find in capitalist society in terms of representing everybody in or not just representing, but enabling all elements of society to fully participate instead of giving up their ability to participate to some elected representatives. Marx died in 1883. Engels died in 1895. 
by that point, the German Social Democratic Party had started coming under the control of people who were union leaders and political scientists who seemed more interested in uh, participating in the state rather than in getting rid of it, and increasingly came to criticize Marx's ideas, especially after his death, criticized his idea that somehow capitalism was inherently uh, crisis-ridden and inherently would lead to a more concentrated social control. Edward Bernstein is the best one of those who became basically the head of the German Social Democratic Party. And he advanced the idea that there would be a magic uh, transition into socialism simply by having the state take over more industries or regulate others and furthering good trends within capitalism he believed capitalism was beyond crisis, that the capitalists have learned how to manage things and smooth out all the problems. This idea of, uh, fell apart completely in the first decade of the 20th century when the world entered into a global, its first global economic crisis, which eventually, which never end, was resolved without World War One, and then only partially only to lead to further crisis in World War II. And furthermore, all the developments since then have demonstrated that uh, controlling capitalism has become far more concentrated over time than what he believed due to stock ownership plans and everything. And the Social Democratic Party after World War I in Germany was actually given state power as a way to control what seemed like complete disintegration of the state and its ability to control anything with the armed forces in a outright mutiny and workers in various places taking over their factories and creating local uh, consuls in order to control society directly. And the German Social Democratic Party was given basic control of the government just a couple of days before the formal end of World War I with the armistice and proceeded to completely repress the radical workers' struggles in Germany. Similar things happened throughout Western Europe with the Social Democratic parties, which once promised there would never be a war then ending up supporting their various nations' war efforts, and then and now acting to repress whatever rebellious energy there was out there. As a result, many parties broke from the, uh, the socialist movement. Before then, you had the Bolsheviks, the majority faction of the Social Democratic Party. Bolshevik, Bolshevik means big in Russian. And this was the majority uh, faction within the Social Democratic Party versus the minority, the Mensheviki. And the Bolsheviks believed state power could be seized, should uh, will never be 
that socialists would never be allowed to take over state power per se. So they had to seize it and impose a program. However, the program that they wanted to impose was social democratic in nature, having to do with state control. The entire socialist movement, for the most part, had come to identify socialism, which means control by society, with control by the state, as if the state and society are one and the same. Something which the American historian James C. Scott, if not many other, others did, did so already, in 2017, he wrote an excellent book called Against the Grain, basically about how the state from its very beginnings Tens, about 10,000 to 8,000 years ago, emerged in order to control humans and had a hard time getting all the humans in its vicinity under control. And it took several thousand years to do that. So the state and society have never been the same. And this passing off of state and society as being the same is a complete... I'm sorry, is a... I'm looking for a word that won't get us banned from the YouTube, but <laughs> you you get the meaning. Mm-hmm. And there there were lots of uh, writers and theoreticians developed in particularly Western Europe, but the U.S. as well, cri- uh, criticizing the entire notion of what had become of the socialist international movement and argued that the very first project of any socialist revolution would have to be getting rid of the state and all its organs, replacing it with the, or with means of direct control by the population, such as workers' councils. And they also argued against retention of the market, even under state control. and market relations such as wage labor and for the immediate transition into socialism. Marx himself argued in critique of the Gotha program in 1875 for the abolition of the market system and market relations and wage labor as a not as an eventual outcome of a socialist revolution, but of the revolution as it emerges right out of uh, capitalism. Page eight of Critique of the Gotha Program. And the other reading, another reading I uh, sent the group was by a British radical uh, socialist, initially a, a feminist activist, suffragette, who became a radical socialist and what's considered left communists, the faction within Europe and the U.S. of people who broke away from this entire idea of socialism means taking over the state and preferred and offered a completely different program than what was offered. For example, using the example of Ireland, contrasting the program of the Communist Party of Ireland to that of the Soviet, which was a council founded in the city of Limerick. 
part of this is also the idea of how the notion of the socialists being on the left came to being, which was with the turn towards reformism on the part of uh, many socialists, a trend that uh, Rosa Luxemburg spoke against in Reform or Revolution. There came to be the idea that, well, socialists are on the left spectrum of more quote unquote moderate political parties which wanted social change. And hence there was kind of a left-right meter where you move from the right a bad right wing all the way to better and better as you go further towards the left. With the idea I argue that the right all the way on the right meant complete control of property by in private hands. Whereas on the extreme left was complete control of property by society, which to them was identified by the state. People argue, have argued since then that this spectrum is only one of many uh, ranges of uh, topics to be handled because there's a, besides left right, there's another one which is obvious, which is bottom top where on the top you have complete autocratic power concentrated in one individual, and on the bottom you have control, complete decentralization of social power. So I would argue, I would place myself at the lower, at the far lower left in favor of a collective control of all social means of production, but under complete this completely decentralized control. So that's uh, that's something that uh, returned over and over again through times as uh, the left is further and further, and the parties of the left have further and further displayed how willing they are to sacrifice any any notion of popular power and any notion of working class interests when it comes to their own power and their own sharing of state power. I mean, even in the 1970s, even the parties which used to call themselves communists participated in repression of working class struggles, parties such as in Italy and France, going out and repressing strikes because it was such strikes went against the national interest, and they are part of the national interest now with representatives in parliament. And so I think that what happened after 9-11 with the left sort of going along with the official story and talking about terrorists responsible for this, and even more what happened with the entire Operation Pan uh, Pandemic since 2020 is simply a display of left fascination with state power and centralized control. I think that's one more reason why people who actually want to completely transform society need to break away from the left as, it, as the left has been identified. I th yeah, I think real revolution lies elsewhere.
so you, you talked about how this idea of the state, right? Like um, uh, the workers being in control of the state uh, mm -hmm. has, you know, since Bernstein, you know, that era to now, right? Like it's 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 very well rooted in the, you know, quote unquote left. Um, and so I guess the question I want to ask to clarify is how would you define the state versus not the state, you know, versus society? Like, what do you say is the state? The state, the state is organs of, it's a good way to define, it's an institution which speaks as if, I mean, which passes itself off as being the interest of society as a whole, but in reality, is the enforcement mechanism for the people who actually wield social power. The uh, state was the autocratic, the original states in the uh, city-states of uh, Southwest Asia, Southwest and Central Asia, and a few of them in other parts of the world were blatantly uh, authoritarian, actually autocratic, representing the interests of a ruling caste. With the, and the state has been, ever since then, been the enforcement mechanism of whatever class was dominant in society, in, against acting against society as a whole acting to impose the interests of that ruling caste for whether it was the Roman state acting on behalf of the major slave owners and landowners or later on feudalism, the state act, the state which was actually weakened, but still acting on behalf of the feudal class. And then the state, under capitalism, acting on behalf of the capitalist class. Later on, even what happens is that you see the state and the capitalist class becoming one and the same in the most extreme case under in, in the Soviet Union, under Stalin, where the state was also the uh, capitalist monopoly company of the entire nation. It's like living in one massive Delaware, which Delaware used to be a company state, basically run by the uh, DuPont Chemical Company. So, and there are lots of company towns. So in a sense, the Soviet Union was a company nation run by one big holding company. And I know in Israel, where I spent my first 11 years, the, uh, State was a major, and the labor union were the two leading capitalists uh, forces in the, in the country at the time we lived there. So there is a distinct. The state is not us. The state can't be us. The state, as it's structured, has always been a, a tool of 
whatever ruling elite existed. The modern state specifically evolved in history together with capital, starting in late medieval England with the enclosures. And the state in the form that supposedly democratic emerged, that idea came out in the, the 18th century, particularly with the creation of the American state. And Ellen Maxson's Wood does a great job talking about how the evolution, political uh, philosophy evolved to allow for the creation of a state structure which was nominally participatory, nominally allowed everybody to participate. But what had happened was that the political realm had become completely divorced from the economic. That a certain class in society, namely the capitalist society, created its social power on the basis of social relations which didn't appear on the face of it to be on the face of them to be repressive. I mean on the feudal class I mean, the peasants had to pay the landlords were off with the produce, money, right a first night for uh, if you got married, the feudal landlord had the first rights. Things like that. So there is blatant social uh, armed force involved in social domination. Likewise, under slavery, under capitalism, the domination came to take the form of domination by the market, seemingly a part of nature, but in reality, of course, it's a weapon of domination by one class over another via such policies as the enclosures. So this enabled the accession of a political power completely divorced from the notion of economic power and any real participation in fundamental decision-making within the society. The the ability of people to actually participate in what really counts has become instead the right to not be bothered by this, by arbitrary state power and to pick representatives who will stand up for you in the legislature. And Ellen Maxson's Wood wrote some really interesting things in the book, Democracy Against Capitalism, which I sent a supplementary reading of. Is it okay if I read just a few of them? Would you be, would that be okay? Sure. I had a few prepared. This is the book. If hopefully that comes out right side up rather than backwards. Economic and political realities in the colonies had already foreclosed the option of an aristocracy. Property had irrevocably discarded its extra economic embellishments in an economy based on commodity exchange and purely economic modes of appropriation, which undermined the neat division between politically privileged property and disenfranchised laboring multitude. 
and a colonial experience culminating in revolution had created a politically active populace. The Federalists thus faced the unprecedented task of preserving what they could of the division between mass and elite in the context of an increasingly democratic franchise and an increasingly active citizenry. It is now more generally acknowledged than it was not very long ago that U.S. democracy was deeply flawed in its very foundations by the exclusion of women, the oppression of slaves, and a genocidal colonialism in relationship to indigenous people. What may not be quite so evident are the anti-democratic principles contained in the idea of democratic citizenship itself, as it was defined by the founding fathers. The framers of the Constitution embarked on their first experiment in designing a set of political institutions that would both embody and at the same time curtail po uh, popular power. In a context where it was no longer possible to maintain an exclusive citizen body, where the option of an active but exclusive citizenry was unavailable, it would be necessary to create an inclusive but passive citizen body with limited scope for its political powers. This also required the Federalists to produce an ideology and specifically a redefinition of democracy, which would disguise the ambiguities in their oligarchic project. As their anti-democratic victors in the U.S., it was the anti-democratic victors in the U.S., a, who gave the modern world its definition of democracy a definition in which the dilution of public, popular power is an essential ingredient. If American political institutions have not been imitated everywhere, the American experiment has nonetheless left this universal legacy. So here we see basically a state which was created with the idea of maintaining, of allowing participation and this idea of fostering the illusion that somehow the state could be taken over and operated on behalf of the majority when in fact, due to the economic relations in society, the uh, real social power exists uh, laid elsewhere. Does that make sense, Kenny? Uh, did I yeah, I think it's, um, I just wanted to, you know, get that out there because uh, I don't think we, we throw these terms around and I just want to make sure, you know, we try to explain it. And because uh, obviously in Marxist leftist circles, uh, we often throw this idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? And mm -hmm. so, you know, I think we have to wrestle with these notions, you know, and, and I guess at some point, and I don't know, you know, like what is the alternative to a non-state society? Because I think for a lot of people, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine, right? Like a world without these institutions that form the state, you know, in order to, again, do what you just described, right? Uh, you know, take power away from the the masses, right? And, and regulate sort of that energy. And so I, I don't know if that's another question that we can address right now, but yeah. 
you know, like what is the alternative to a non-state, you know, as maybe how Marx started talking about it, right? Right. The, as I mentioned, he brought up the idea of the Paris Commune. But beyond Marx, I think what were the uh, have been the best examples of how a possible post-state society could look like in in a socialist context where a the Russian revolution period between the overthrow of the Tsar and the Bolshevik takeover of state power were basically social power and devolved to factory committees running the factories as well as running the farms which were occupied by agricultural workers with increasing efforts to coordinate the various work sites together in in a democratic uh, directly uh, participatory democratic ways as well as social uh, the power of the soviets the local councils in order to make uh, decisions regarding the whole of society it the factory committees and the soviets basically got disempowered by the state once the Bolshevik takeover took place. There's a great book called The Bolsheviks and Workers' Control, 1917 through 1921, by a British political activist, Maurice Brinton, from 1970. And the other uh, one I'm, I'm thinking of is Catalonia in the first year of the Spanish Civil War where social power was basically taken over by collectives which federated themselves in larger and larger assemblies with decision-making always finally devolving to the lower ranks, all collectives which, say, participated in uh, some process had to agree to it in mass assembly meetings, there were organs of coordination which were relied upon delegates from various smaller units, but those delegates were not were supposed to be always rotating, revocable, in other words, pulled away in case they overstepped their mandates, so that no one actually uh, became kind of a permanent ruling. Big, a ruling apparatus. All power was supposed to remain entirely within the grassroots. Yes, it, it, uh, that experiment didn't last after May 1937, primarily because Stalin's, Stalin decided it had to be liquidated and pressured the government in Madrid, which relied upon the Soviet Union for its support at that point, to it basically required that government to come down with heavy force and down on the Catalonia uh, collectives, as well as in Oregon. And uh, George Orwell wrote about this in 
Homage to Catalonia, a book which became rather well known. There was a lot of what got him to later on write in 1984 and uh, Animal Farm. Many of his experiences in Catalonia led him to that. He had to flee the country because he was actually wanted for arrest and probable torture. He actually fled and managed to escape across the border. And then once in, back in Britain, he was attacked by leftists for supposedly destroying unity by saying stuff that was going on. From, sounds familiar from mm -hmm. 2020 by any chance? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, those are possible historical examples. Can you apply them today? I'll be frank, I say I don't know. Society has become more specialized in terms of what people do. The breakdown of community has proceeded much further. People have been, as my friend Eric Coplino says, digital, digitally disembodied. They often can't participate in, uh, in things like mass assemblies. I mean, can you imagine mass assemblies with everybody just chatting away on their cell phones and not even noticing what anybody, what's going on around them? I mean, so I don't know if this could work. And the global production apparatus, it's now global production apparatus. It's gotten far more complex in terms of operation, requires high tech. Can this be taken over and run? I don't know. I'm increasingly favoring uh, the idea of progressive deindustrialization, getting rid of our dependence on industry, and somehow creating some sort of a viable, sustainable society which primarily relies upon growing of food using whatever technology we we have at present scavenge whatever we can out of it to create some sort of a transition to a completely different way of living and very decentralized so i don't know if this if the communist program say of 1922 that sylvia pankhurst wrote in the reading that i have is viable today I, I'm just saying, I don't know. I think we have to go further to doing, thing, uh, doing something new. We'll have to figure it out ourselves. But I think it's possible. And I think we have some ideas. Eduardo, what about you? What are thoughts that come up for you from this? And then I'll share mine, I guess. Jeffrey, I mean, I'm not sure if we're going still staying in history i'm trying to apply it to now um you you think that maybe we our left what we have considered the left for for, for so long has um has turned its back on its original origins i think that what we have now is not not as revolutionary and and can I take a stab at that, answering that question, Jeff? And then 
because I thought the reading you sent me made me think about that question that Eduardo's, and then I want to see what you would have to say. Um, so a lot of what's been happening for me since I left an organ, a, a revolutionary organization, which made its primary goal and what, that I adopted and I saw it as good as build, rebuilding a left. A lot what has happened to me since then, when I saw those same socialists who said they were for revolution, become reformists and, and dive in the Democratic Party, and then become reformists and attack anybody who would try to fight the state when it imposed COVID measures. Um, that reminded me very much of the way that Jeff was describing the social, the, the way socialists in the, I mean, the, the German Social Democratic Party was a much bigger thing it, it, prior to World War One, but reminded me of that same way that the, those socialists betrayed the cost in supporting the war and attacking anyone who was, you know, essentially really trying to fight for revolution within Germany. So the socialists were the ones who attacked those people. And then the COVID experience reminded me of that. And so I've been struggling with this thing of the left. I came to start to think, wait, there's the, why, do I, why do I have to just find an audience among the left? We can find an audience among the right as well. Okay, fine. And then even go, going far to, to say that, that left and right are actually ways of, keep, of maintaining political divisions among workers. Okay, fine. I think the thing that Jeff, that you, that the stuff that you sent me reminded me that the origins of left and origins of right are, are well framed within state supporting systems. And in this case, the capitalist state, that, that the left, the left's origin exists from the idea of, you know, uh, the right one to say, no, the king gets to veto something. And the left said, the people on the left side of parliament said, no, they, the king does not get to veto. But both of them understand that the king is going to have a say and that the, the state as it existed is going to be empowered in, in the name of the people. But as Jeff is saying, all these states represent oppressive apparatuses keeping a, a given ruling class in power. So the left wing of such a state is just a ruling class, it's just a, an apparatus of ruling power. So in a sense, the left has been very effective. Uh, the, the left has not been... It, not effective in doing it. The left has been very effective in maintaining capitalist rule or do, or the dominance of an elite in power, because that's its role. Its role is to basically operate as two wings of a, of a, of a bird that keeps the capitalists up high. And so I don't think the left has been ineffective. I think revolutionaries have been ineffective because we've been chasing the left. We've been ch we've been trying to build. The, a stronger bird <laughs> that will fly above us, you know, and and it's and there's no future in it. Now, whether a person calls themselves left or calls themselves right, I do believe I have a. I, I want to talk with them as a revolutionary. I want to talk with them about what are their beliefs and whether this system is working for them. But I I think Jeff's readings really helped me even go further in saying I'm not interested in building a left. I'm not interested in building a right because the left and the right are left wings and right wings of capitalist autocratic rule. That's all that's all they represent. And I really like Jeff you saying that one end goes from really seemingly celebrating just private ownership or prop or the private capitalist property relations free market and then you can go all the way from the right that's the right side and you go all the way to the left and oh here we go it's the state and this is where 
And it's the state kind of coming in. And this is where all people's illusions about the state come in, thinking that the state is somehow neutral, that it's going to actually be a, a wrestling match between the capitalists and the workers in the feature of the state. And the state is not neutral. It's, a, it's literally an apparatus of that same capitalist class that people were worried about on the right wing. Here it is on the left wing, just taking a different form, one that makes you think that it's working with you. And as, as you mentioned that re in that reading, um, that from... Um, that you that you did, did it, it 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 casts an illusion of sorts and makes people think that there's something over here that that may fight for me that that where, which represents me even if I think those 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 capitalists those those rich capitalists over there I know don't um, well it turns out you're in exactly the same territory just in, in a in a place that's seeming that's more hidden in some ways. When you are operating with within that left wing, or operating to kind of uh, get the state to do something for you, um, so that to me is what really came out of this: is that the left has been extremely effective, actually, in keeping the capitalist state afloat and in obscuring its, uh, helping it obscure its actual autocracy under the veneer of democracy. Well said, sir. Yeah, I, I think. Well, the the state's health, its financial health, depends upon the success of the various capitalist entities, which exist under its jurisdiction. That's where it gets its uh, funding, either from taxes of their profits or from them buying state bonds directly financing the state. Actually, that's probably more important. And, uh, it's been more important for at least a century than direct tax revenue. There, it's the capitalist class, whether it's private capitalists or corporations or even state functionaries or state enterprises, which enable the state to function. So the state has every reason to help facilitate the functioning of capitalism and the repression of the people who actually make capitalism possible, namely the working class. So I think in uh, also uh, Eduardo, the idea it's a question of revolution. The left is no longer revolutionary, but I would have to say. Compared to what? Because I think the left was never revolutionary per se, as the left really exists as a faction of capital, of a faction of the state. Social, the socialist movement was revolutionary, but that's before it began to see itself as part of the left mm -hmm. and began to see its interests as being more in terms of increasing statification of a society rather than the complete transformation of society. And that took place more than a hundred years ago. I mean, that took place by the late 19th century. And it's just become more and more accentuated and worse as time went on. There are noises, there are noises made by people who call themselves leftists, which sounded very radical at different times in history, such as in, well, starting even in the 60s or 
the 90s or around the question of globalization. But those have always stayed within the bounds of state power. They were not really revolutionary. I think that that's the distinction. There's, there was never a real identity between the left and social revolution. It's just less less of a pretense now than it's ever been. Well, I mean, I think that makes sense that you can't have a revolutionary left if it's still within a state or functioning within a state. I, I understand that. But uh, I'm not sure if I want to... I want to let Kenny go on because I, I have a question on anarchism. Um, if I think was there wasn't mentioned uh, much about it. But I'm not sure if where Kenny might go in which direction. It's it's okay. I don't know if you want to go, Lipson. I yeah. One one things I want to highlight from this discussion that we've been coming back to, um, and that's gonna and this is gonna be in the freedom so called freedom movement, um, is the way we're talking about the state is one of the reasons why open borders and really removing borders, removing national borders is so crucial, and. Everyone who says that they were opposed to the state that was trying to force them injections and force them to have vaccine passports and say, and looking at that state as, as a weapon being used against them, they were right in seeing that. Now they have turned to asking the state to defend that border. And when you ask the state to defend that border, you are asking the state to empower itself. And it will be empowering itself against you, even if you think what it's doing is empowering your, it to go and defend you from immigrants taking your jobs. You are empowering an, a vicious thing that is for for the other side. You are giving it power. And in fact, you are inviting it to, to oppress you um, when you do this. That's one thing. The second thing I think that was important, can you remind me, Jeff, the title of the thing you read? Which one? Um, yeah, against uh, capitalism? Against oh, the thing that I read out of Democracy Against Capitalism it was a chapter called the demos, the demos versus we the people. Right, and I think what's really important in it is to understand. For many people in the freedom movement, they talk about taking America back and taking America back to its kind of revolutionary roots, the four, the forefathers, the founding fathers. And look, and I, what I appreciate about this, and people can talk about no, no vote for women. Um, Blacks, slavery of blacks, and the 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 murder of indigenous folks, but the the person you wrote that who wrote that also made sure to say, and and underneath yes, all of that plus there was nothing democratic about this about this new state. It was a state of illusions that it was meant to make you think you had a participatory place, and in fact, the Constitution itself, certainly compared to the Articles of the Confederacy. We're really about centralizing power and smashing anything that was like the rebellions that were that were taking place among farmers and in the cities that were taking place at the time, because it was, people had been part of that American Revolution, expected the American Revolution to bring them liberty, and it and it wasn't, so they were going to fight for it. They were going to take up arms again against new oppressors, and the state defeated them. And that's that's the American Revolution state. It was the ones who defeated the people who wanted freedom, and so. You can't, you can't go back to that thing. You and if you do come back to that thing, you're just going to get the same thing you got right now because that the state we the state we are living in now is is the giant gorilla that was a pretty strong ape at that time, um, and 
you know, so there's no going back to that. We will have to, we will have to go to a different place. And I agree with Jeff. I probably go in the direction myself of a, of a deindustrialized, more almost indigenous, like the Iroquois you're talking about. And, and I don't know how much we can keep of what we got. Um, and, um, but that's, that's another question. Um, but the, what does revolution look like? I don't know as, as much as I used to, I thought, thought I knew. Um, but I know that it requires eliminating these institutions and the system that, that this, 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 that the system that relies on that, that profit system. So how we get there, I don't know. I just know that you can't get there through the left and you can't get there through the state. The, the writer is uh, Ellen Mikesons Wood. Yeah. The, it's M E I K I N S. And Canadian writer, she, she died earlier in this century, in, somewhere around 2015. She was with York University. And I would say she's the best writer by far at least in, in terms of recent times, about what the whole process of enclosures was about. She had a book called The Agrarian Origins of uh, Capitalism, mm. but also the book Democracy Against Capitalism, I think, is an excellent statement of the reality, the political reality, which we're all living in. Uh, for me, it's increasingly clear, you know, I was clear years ago that the mythology of America, the U.S. Constitution, you know, social democracy, all that um, was, you know, a construct to protect, you know, a system. And it, what this conversation has done is made it clearer, right? Because that as someone who has for long, a long time identified as a leftist, anti-imperialist, all this stuff, uh, it's becoming clear that I also believe in a mythology <laughs> of the left, you know, and, and, and therefore I was an apologist for, you know, the Soviet stuff. I was an apologist for the Cuban stuff, you know, and now I'm no longer that. And I can see, you know, because understanding this, right, what the state is, what state capitalism is, uh, seeing in China, right, like, that in not defending that right and also realizing that we live to not waste my energy in these sports of uh the american politics right the election year of you know of believing that just choosing someone more virtuous because that's unfortunately what a lot of people on that we found common ground with right during the pandemic uh or that period uh like the johnny uh, the jimmy doors the um what are the names? Uh, the, the girl, sorry, she was Kim Carson. Yeah. You know, in, in in engaging in all these conversations about you know the system being corrupted and and stuff, and and for me, it's just increasingly clear, like it, with this framing, right, that the state needs to go. That that's a waste of time. That going to vote <laughs> is surrendering to the system. That you know that that that. that into that idea that it's just about people with good, um, you know, individuals with good intentions, <laughs> individuals with better ideas, when in fact there's an entire system that needs to go away, 
and 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 it's not and and also why does it need to go away right like we we've talked about like the road that we're heading towards uh you know jeff you talked about how you know after Bernstein, right like in that compromise of you know the social democratic or the socialist democratics saying that you know capitalism had resolved its contradictions and then it ended up in massive global war you know and then we had another war <laughs> and, and, mm -hmm. and i think that is one of the biggest motivators <laughs> you know, to keep on going and talking about this for me, you know, uh, being a young parent, you know, and, and um, thinking about the future, you know, and, and why is there necessity? Because I don't want to just talk about virtue. I, you know, I don't want to say that I'm more virtuous than someone else. There, there is a, a reality, you know, that, that, that I want to defend and protect, you know, because obviously it's becoming clear that the state is not here to protect us. I work in industrial food production right now. I know that the fucking FDA is not there to protect us, you know, uh, or, or the USDA and all these institutions, you know, they're part of these apparatus that create this, this narrative that, you know, they're there, you know, and as long as there is someone wielding it with good intentions is gonna do, you know, well for us, but it's not, it never will be, whether you're on the right, whether you're on the left. And in fact, I invite people to rethink that fucking line. You know, because that that's where I'm at, you know, because, I, I you know, I see and now I see like, yes, you damn right wingers, you know, you should be fucking suspicious of, of the fucking communists, you know, and I, I see that clear, you know, I don't I don't I don't sit back and defend, you know, uh, again, that mythology of the historical left, you know, and, and so that's why I found this conversation, these readings. Uh, important in clarifying, you know, uh, the fact that we need to do away with the state and find something else. And I think we're in search of that. <clears throat> Eduardo, your thoughts? Yes, this is where I come in with what I thought, what I, I had wondered what your thoughts were on anarchism, because I know you're a self-described socialist, Jeffrey. Or a Marxian. Well, I've, Marxian. I define, I've defined myself in all sorts of ways. I kind of like Marxian anarchist, actually, because I do feel like the state, well, the state has existed longer than capital has. In a way, it's a more fundamental problem. But then, as Marx pointed out very well, capitalism takes institutions which existed before it and incorporates them into the entire structure of capitalism, but in a completely changed form, one that's suited for capital. So what we're dealing with is the modern capitalist state. We're not just dealing with the abstract state as it always existed. It's a very specific state structure that's really been in ascendancy and in control since late medieval England and increasingly over the rest of the world. So I thought of myself as an anarchist when I first went beyond liberalism and the kind of mainstream leftist thought. I came to associate myself more with the, the idea of council communists or libertarian communists 
a year a year or so later as I came across their writings and saw them as being just as strongly anti-state as the anarchists were, except with more of a focus on capital as a social relation, which I felt like too many anarchists over time have not really dealt with adequately or dealt with it by thinking that somehow all you need is for workers to take over their workplaces and then run them as if they could run them as enterprises within the market and somehow do something different than uh, what's going on now when in fact all the evidence is to the contrary. They, there are many anarchists who have taken note of that. And it's noteworthy that subversion, one of the readings that I sent as recommended, in fact stated that they would rather get beyond this division between anarchists and communists. Because in a way, we're all share some very similar perspective. I would even go further with and agree with Andy and Kenny, the whole idea of we need to go beyond left and right. But that's, I think, because in advancing a vision which I find to be a combination of anarchist and communist notions of how society should be without regard to what came from which side, I think part of it is also getting beyond left and right and seeing the entire population as being people to be reached. Or at the very least, that segment of the population, the overwhelmingly large segment, which doesn't really have social power. Out to estimates of the 99.9% sounds good. I think there are certainly layers within the 99.9% who see their self-interest as being tied to the 0.1%. Complete delusion that some of that's the only rational way to run society. And sometimes complete delusion to think that they somehow, if they played the game, could join the 0.1% at the top as well. I think more the former, just thinking, well, this world cannot be run any other way. So this is the best we can do. But nonetheless, that doesn't obviate the reality that the vast majority of the people, the very vast, vast majority of people in the world do not benefit from the existing society. Whether they think of themselves as left or right, or I would argue many of them don't even think of left and right, in terms of left and right, pretty much depoliticized. Whatever they can grab onto at the moment is what they put forth. They don't check and see which correct line they're following, if there is a correct line. It's whatever they grab onto. Not to say that it's often not an illusion that they picked up from the mass media, something that they saw in some commercial, you know, that that's run on the... Sunday football, but still, they don't. They don't. Most people don't even think of themselves in straight left-right terms. Occasionally, they think of left and right in terms of Republicans versus Democrats, which I think is just a complete perversion of any notion of even the historical 
ideal left and right. Because those two parties are just completely controlled uh, corporate entities, just two different franchises, <laughs> sometimes by the same corporations. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I have absolutely nothing against putting forth ideas that uh, anarchists have, uh, have advocated for. Not because, and I don't reject anything just because it came from somebody calling themselves an anarchist. I might reject them if they came, if I thought they were really bad ideas, but not because they come from a particular label. Although, just to be clear, one of the political divisions that the anarchists and um, socialists have divided on is actually the role of a state, whether it be a worker state or not a worker state kind of thing. And and the notion of is is such a thing a feature of, of or part of the revolutionary process that to me did seem to be a key dividing line, which would make it sometimes difficult for anarchists and Marxists to to uh, be pointed in the same direction. Are you talking about historically or? I think, I, mean, I believe historically, yeah. I mean, yeah, at, least, at least around like the Russian Revolution and then Spain, like those were the sorts of uh, directions. You know, the idea of no, the workers' councils won't take power in Spain. Yes, the Soviets as workers' councils will take power in Russia as a notion of a transitional working class state at least that's the idea, um, that would then be a transition to an, an, a stateless existence, um, which didn't, it didn't turn out to go that way. Well, uh, I would say, but even by the end of World War I, there were many people who considered themselves Marxists, who were totally done with any idea of the state is going to play a role in this. They had nothing. The only thing they could say about the state was get rid of it. ASAP. It's a it's a complete barrier to any social transformation. I'm talking about people such as in Germany. Well, Rosa Luxemburg was moving in that direction when she was murdered by the troops of, run by the Social Democratic Party. And Hermann Gorder and Otto Rulle and a young activist named Paul Maddock who then moved to the U.S. and became a well-known Council communist in the U.S. People in Britain, such as Sylvia Pankhurst, right, uh, who wrote the, one of the articles that I mailed as part of the reading. People like Amadeo Bordiga in Italy, and uh, Anton Panacock in in the Netherlands, a scientist, in fact, an astronomer who also was also a, a socialist wrote an excellent uh, book called Workers' Councils about how a society run by workers' councils. I think, I mean, it's well-written. It's got problems in terms of uh, how it sees the world, but I think it's, in a very, it's, it's a very interesting reading. He also wrote an excellent analysis of the problems he saw with Lenin and Lenin's philosophy in terms of thinking that he had appropriated the idea of philosophy from Marx, when in fact he made major errors in his understanding of Marx's philosophy. And 
there have been uh, legacies for these people, various political tendencies in Italy, in France, in Germany, in Britain, and in the U.S. that have carried on the work of these of these folks who consider themselves Marxists, but definitely anti-statist. So I don't think that that's quite as... And I would think that that's where subversion is coming from as well. I, I, I have a feeling that they come from a Marxist background, but are now very open to participating with anarchists. And there are lots of uh, people like that. Around. There was more recently groups called the International Co uh, Communist Current and Internationalist Perspectives. So I don't think that it's necessarily a big break, a big break between socialists and anarchists, at least not since the early part of the 20th century, even if it did play a role in, say, the uh, split up in the international in the, the 1870s. But I guess even the British, even the woman, the Irish. Um, she's British. Yeah. Oh, she's British, but she's writing about Ireland. Right. Even she. So we have encouraged. Yeah, the, yeah. The existence of workers' councils in Ireland that, in, in almost like a dual power sort of situation, that these workers' councils are operating as an alternative institution of, of, of uh, operation. And, and and would need and the reason that the existing state would have to come down is it was actually interfering with the possible rule, if you will, of these councils uh, for running right. running society. And I do think that notion is uh, like the all power to the Soviets kind of slogan that came out of the Russian Revolution wasn't was it was a reflection of the fact that dual power existed and they couldn't maintain itself. One was going to have to rule over the other, and it was an express that notion of all power of the Soviets is a notion of eliminate the capitalist state and replace it with workers' power through these workers' councils called Soviets. Um, whether it then developed that beyond, for me, I have questions about that, but it does seem to me that that, 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 that 1918 example or 1917 example in Russia is an example of, 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 of a of, of socialists who believe in the possibility of a worker state as a transition to a stateless society. Well, I don't really think that they thought of it as a state. I think that they thought of the federated councils as an alternative to the state. Many of the people who participated in the Soviets and in the factory committees, in fact, considered themselves anarchists. Mm -hmm. And this was repeated in uh, various uh, political uh, initiatives undertaken in Russia at that time and since, such as the, uh, what is it, the Kronstadt uprising mm -hmm. in 1921, which ripped the takeover of the city of Kronstadt, the uh, naval base in the Baltic, by the sailors and the soldiers, as well as the working class of the city, which is very close to St. Petersburg, and also the uh, Maknovist collectives of Ukraine who part 
participated in fighting the Red Army, but also resisted. I mean, participated in fighting the White Armies. They were pro- probably responsible for them. the defeat of the White Armies in the southern part of Russia, but also and in alliance with the armies run by the government in Moscow, but also existed in separation from that government. So in a sense, you could say dual power. And the uh, federated collectives of Catalonia were definitely anarchist mm-hmm. in their leanings, but also involved participation by people who call themselves communists. In fact, there was a small Trotskyist group called Pum. It's an initial P-O-U-M, which Orwell was, in fact, working with when he wrote a, when he witnessed what happened in Catalonia. He, he came from Britain to participate and he was introduced to these people and joined them. And Pum was liquidated along with the anarchist collectives by the Soviet-supported government in Madrid. I mean, needless to say, Stalin was all too eager to repress an organization which defined itself somewhat as being Trotskyist in its orientation. Mm-hmm. So I I don't see it as an as a difference as a worker state, but rather as an alternative means of social social power. At least that's how I I see it. I think that we need to do a whole other section and episode on this. I could comment on some. I was just typing in key words right now uh, that we could look up such as what you said as well as the anarchists having worked with other socialists in Catalonia. Um, but, but it's a whole episode that we can do on that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, Four or five episodes can come out of this one. <laughs> Easy. I'm looking at the time and I know Kenny has to get going. Um, I think maybe we should look for some final thoughts. I'm not sure if there's anything else that could be drawn out from this conversation. I, I think that what I appreciate about everyone here, you know, it's like, it's the journey, right, of continuing to search for answers and in questioning things, um, you know, like, Jeff, you talked about how you started as an anarchist and a libertarian communist, you said, or socialist? Yeah, libertarian communist, uh, Lipson, you talked about your journey from the ISO and out of that, right? And I also, you know, I had I dipped my toes in liberal politics, you know, and then I'm here somehow. <laughs> but you know, mm-hmm. what, what unites us? So Eduardo, too, right? Like you, you're going through your own transition. People have witnessed in the show too, like how we've debated about things. And but I guess ultimately. It, I think that that's what I take out of, out of this, you know, like that's important to, you know, find people who are also not, not static with their ideas, right? Because finding an answer is going to find need a dynamism of, of, you know, allowing ourselves to be flexible, you know, and, and that that's been the biggest lesson I've had in the last four years, you know, that, I have to listen to those people I'm told I'm not supposed to listen to. You know, <laughs> so we're so adamant about conspirational yeah. theories, right? Like <laughs> that's kind of the spirit of it. You know, like the people that sound crazy <laughs> sometimes have the most reasonable minds, you know, in, 
and and so no, I appreciate all of you, you know, sharing your journey. Um, you know, I'm always excited to hear from you, Jeff. Um, and, you know, just a uh, lot of respect. Uh, and thank you for your comments that challenge us. And, and, you know, looking forward to another conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. And my thoughts are with some of these readings that Jeff sent us. Um, he sent us a Time article, Time Magazine article from 2019. He sent us an article that was written in 1922. Something, another, it was a reference to that 1922 thing um, in the 1970s. Um, I would just invite people to read those. Uh, and you may find some of it confusing. You may find some of it like, wait, why, why, why is what's happening in Ireland in 1922 have anything to do with what's happening with us 100 years later? Um, my feeling is all of us are going to have to relearn our history um, and unlearn the history we were taught. And you're, you're going to have to go on your own journey. And it might take you through Russia. It might take you through Spain. It might take you through China. It might take you through France. It might take you, and, and I mean in different times, the French Revolution or the Paris Commune. But just understand, I believe that if we're going to change the world, we're going to have to understand the world before the world that was before us and some of the things that people who also were trying to change the world were doing um, and what, what were ideas they were grappling with. Um, and so I'd, I'd invite you to, if, if these readings don't resonate with you, it, it, we, it is going to be necessary to learn about history uh, and to try to make something of history in relationship to what's happening today. Um, not just as a discussion point, but as a point for like, okay, this is what they did. We don't think it worked for that reason. How, what can we do differently this time um, to, to change society? So I think that's what comes to mind for me as, as final thoughts. And thank you, Jeff, for, for doing this. So it's a lot of fun to just hear all these different things, the sweep of history that you're able to kind of tie these things together. It's really amazing. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Always. Thank you. Well, so let's conclude then so we can wrap up and have Kenny do his duties. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for this week's episode. <clears throat> What's Left is a weekly political podcast that's channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics on, and our guests in the episode notes will be from this episode or on our blog at westleftpodcast.com. You can find past episodes to this podcast last channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything I've heard here, please subscribe rate review turn on your notifications to enter our platform on spotify itunes podcast google play oh no no more google play uh bit shoot policy youtube number or telegram you can find our blog and any of those links to the episode that's where you found this episode if you would like to give us feedback about something, something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover contact us through our blog i'm eduardo Barca with co-hosts uh, andy lipson and kenny cepeda and you can find our social media handle as at don eduardo, eduardo Barca on instagram and uh, thank you for listening. Thanks once again, Jeffrey Stroll, for being with us. And uh, we look forward to having you on another episode. All right. Ciao. Yeah.